All right, if you are here today and you haven't been for several weeks, we're in the middle of a series on the Great Commission. Uh, many of you know that's a very popular word uh, within the church, and we've been teaching on this for several weeks, and we have several weeks left to go. And today we have made our way to evangelism in the Great Commission, and we we're, we're going to specifically unpack today personal evangelism. So what we're going into today is not what's done in the, in the front of a corporate gathering, but what's done in your everyday life, uh, personal evangelism. And I'm going to pray for us before we get started, and I would invite you guys to join me. Father, we come into your presence, Lord, and we come to worship you, God. Jesus, you have saved us, and we long to exalt you, to give you proper glory and proper praise for who you are and what you've done, Lord. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you that we gather together in your name as your people, called by your name, Lord. We are your possession. You own us forever, even into eternity. God, and we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, Father, we ask for your help in these next few moments, Lord. We ask for your Holy Spirit to come down, Lord, to make your word effective in our hearts, God. We pray, Lord, that this will be a time where you would exalt your Son, Jesus, and Jesus, we pray that You would reign in this place. That You would reign in our lives and in our hearts, Lord. God, I pray that You would make this time a time of equipping. That the saints would be equipped in this time to do the work of ministry. And God, I just cry out to You just again, Lord. I want to ask and seek and knock that, that this time would not fall into futility or be in vain. But You would use it for Your glory and for the edification of Your church. And Father, I pray that You would raise this church up as an army for Christ, that we would carry His name to the farthest parts of the end of the earth, Lord. God, we pray, we pray and we ask that You would do that among us, God. That You said, Lord Jesus, that the gates of hell would not prevail against Your church. God, and we pray, God, make Your Word strong. Make it stand forever. God, make that Word true among us and in this church. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, personal evangelism. Alright, let me throw this out there before we get started. Many of you know this. There are a couple of topics uh, in the church that, uh, let me just say it like this. That there are a few things that can make Christians feel more guilty uh, than a hard press to evangelize more. Uh, I can think of a couple more to go along with that. You know, usually you hear tithing, evangelism, and prayer. Uh, so those are, those are kind of the pushes to where you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And one of the big takeaways that comes away from almost every message on personal evangelism is just a defeated mindset that I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this. Okay? I'm going to come out at that a different route. I am going to bring the commands of the Word of God to bear on every Christian in this room. Okay? But my heart in doing that is I want to go after that with an end goal to empower you and to encourage you to delight in what Jesus has called you to do. Okay, So just hear that from the get-go. That I, I have no desire to place condemnation on you or even unhealthy uh, guilt on your conscience. We're going after empowerment, we're going after obedience, and we're going after to the delight to take Jesus' name to the ends of the earth. Okay, Now, to start that, uh, I have a lot to cover this morning. I mean, I got way more than I usually do, so I'm going to be talking so fast 
In fact, I'm going to try to remind myself several times while I'm teaching, you've got to talk faster. You've got to get this out. Okay? So I'm going to be talking very fast, and I've got a long introduction in just a few minutes, and I want to just uh, call you guys to listen to it. There's going to be a lot of information that I'm going to give you. Please don't try to write this all down. I want you to hear it. This will be online if you want to go back and, and revisit what I said. Uh, so we're going to go through a long introduction. Uh, and I want to encourage you guys at the very beginning that every Christian in this room, every single believer, is part of a huge story, an eternal story and a global story. Every single believer in this room. Um, this story starts in eternity past, but we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 11. Okay, I want you to think about this. What happens in Genesis chapter 11? In Genesis chapter 11... God reveals to us the story of the Tower of Babel. You say, where is God going? Okay. Genesis chapter 11 begins by letting us know that all the earth had one language, and they were, they were in unity, and they were gathered together in the Tower of Babel. Okay. And if you've ever read this for yourself, Genesis chapter 11 ends by God judging humanity and scattering them to the farthest corners of the earth and giving them different languages. Okay. So in Genesis chapter 11, the nations of the earth were birthed. They were born in the midst of God's judgment. Okay? Nations. Didn't exist before Genesis 11. Now they exist at the end of Genesis 11. Okay? Now, here's where we're going to pick up. Not even a full chapter later. Okay? In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we have this promise from God to Abraham in the midst of this judgment on humanity. Listen to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God promises Abraham, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay? This all nations promise that were just scattered to the ends of the earth. God said he was going to bring one from Abraham's line to bless all the nations of the earth. This all nations promise was repeated to Abraham's son Isaac. And you see that in Genesis 26 verse 4. It's repeated again to Isaac's son Jacob. In Genesis 28, verse 14. Okay? Now we're going to fast forward all the way to the book of Galatians. And Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that that offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth is Christ Jesus. Okay? He is the one that's going to bless all the nations of the earth that have been scattered to the ends of the, ends of the world. Okay? Also in Galatians 3, verse 8 it says that that message that God proclaimed to Abraham, that all nations promised that there's one coming from your line, Abraham, that's going to bless all the nations of the earth. Galatians 3, verse 8, calls that the gospel. Okay, You can go check that out. You can go look that up later. So let's walk that back into Genesis 12. The gospel, this all nations promise, okay, is the gospel of Jesus, and it's been proclaimed since Genesis chapter 12. That's about 5,000, at least 5,000 years ago, okay, that the gospel has been proclaimed in the earth. Now, I want to fast forward from Genesis chapter 12, and I want to run several thousand years all the way to Matthew chapter 28, because we have a huge pivot point in Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus gives this authoritative command. We call it the Great Commission to His church. And He commands His church to go and make disciples of all, finish the sentence, nations, okay? There's one coming that's going to bring blessing to all the nations, and Jesus gives this commandment, this great commission that we are to make disciples of all nations. But check this out. 
Four chapters before, Matthew 24, Jesus gave us another promise. Okay? This promise it has to do with the end of time. Listen to Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay? The end of time is only waiting on one thing. The gospel of the kingdom to reach the ends of the earth, all nations. And Jesus says, the promise from Jesus' mouth is, then the end will come. So I want you to think about this. The book of Acts, Jesus, Jesus gives this command to his church to take this mission into the nations. And that word, you see this word a lot in the scriptures. You need to know what it means. The word Gentiles means nations. Okay. Gentiles means nations. If you never knew that, you need to write that maybe down beside every time the word Gentile shows up in your Bible, you need to write nations. Okay? The book of Acts traces the spread of the gospel of Jesus from Jerusalem to its beginning to the ends of the earth. You can see that in the book of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem, and in Acts 28, when it finishes, it's already spreading into a huge portion of the Roman Empire. Okay. I want to call your attention to a couple of things in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, uh, we have recorded for us the first conversion of a Gentile man named Cornelius. Okay. And up until this is a huge pivot point in the Word of God. Peter the Apostle goes to Cornelius and proclaims the gospel. And in Acts chapter 10, in the middle of of Peter's gospel preaching in the middle of it, not at the end. As he was talking, the Holy Spirit comes down on this man and he was born again and the Gentiles were given the Spirit of God. Then, and and this, just, this just accelerates out on through the book of Acts. Three chapters later in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas set out on the first Gentile missionary journey. The first time that the church would take it to the nations, Acts 13, and you see it go. And you see it go. And you see it go. Okay, what I want to do this morning, and I'm praying that the Lord would encourage you during this time, is I want to walk straight off the pages of Acts. Okay, and these are the authoritative pages of the Word of God. And I want to walk into church history and trace out the gospel to how it's hit the furthest corners of the earth. Okay? I want you to listen to this. The following is not meant to be an exact facts beyond dispute, but an overview of how the gospel has landed to every nation on earth. You understand that? We're leaving the authoritative book. This is just an overview. Okay? And I want to give everybody a heads up that I am leaning heavily on Matt Chandler and Jerry Rankin for the following information. So just know that. Alright? Here we go. In 1482, I want you to think, this gospel has been proclaimed since Genesis 11. Jesus said to take it to the nations. This all-nations mission was inaugurated in Acts 10 and Acts 13. And here we go. Okay, In 1482, I'm up, sorry. In 14, uh, sorry again. 42 AD, Mark takes the gospel to Egypt. In 49 AD, Paul takes the gospel to modern-day Turkey. In 51 AD, Paul takes the gospel to Greece. In 52 A.D., some argue that Thomas takes the gospel to India. In 174 A.D., the first Christians are reported in Austria. In 256 A.D., we have the first written record of rural churches in northern Italy. And this is a big deal because for the first 200 years of Christianity, it was, it was an almost urban thing, big cities. Now we have the church of Jesus planted in villages and rural areas. In 350 A.D., there was a church planted in every major city of the Roman Empire. 
And some report that there were 37 million people that claimed Christ as Lord. This would have been 53% of the Roman Empire. And even if those numbers are inflated, ridiculously inflated, even the most conservative numbers would show you that the gospel exploded in 200 years from a church of 120 people in Acts chapter 1. It exploded in 200 years. Here we go. In, in 430 AD, Patrick heads to Ireland. And I love the joke that we celebrate this godly missionary by getting slammed, wearing green, and pinching each other once a year. I love that joke. In 596 AD, Augustine of Canterbury takes the gospel to England and baptizes 10,000 people in two years and becomes known as the apostle to the English peoples. In 635 A.D., the first Christian missionaries arrive in China. In 745 A.D., Irish monks reach Iceland. And in 900 A.D., they reach Norway. In 1200 A.D., the Bible is available in 22 different languages. In 1498 A.D., the first Christians are reported in Kenya. In 1554 A.D., 1,500 people convert in Thailand. In 630 A.D., there was a mission set up in El Paso, Texas for the Central American Indians. In 743 A.D., David Brainerd starts a mission work to North American Indians. In 1792 A.D., William Carey founds the Baptist Missionary Society in England. And one year later, he takes the gospel to Calcutta, India. The response of Carey's work is so stirring that he becomes known as the father of modern missions. In 1783 A.D., the Mississippi, the Mississippi Territory, where we're at now, was deeded by Great Britain to the United States after American Revolutionary War under the terms of the Treaty of Paris. And 15 years later, in 1799 A.D., Protestant missionary activity begins in, in, the, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Territory in the cities of Natchez and Old Biloxi. About 35 years later, this missionary activity moves inland into the Mississippi Territory, and Protestant missionaries penetrated Jackson, Mississippi with the gospel. In 1836 A.D., First Methodist Church of Jackson was birthed. In 1837, First Presbyterian Church of Jackson was birthed. And in 1838, the First Baptist Church of Jackson was birthed. Do you see that we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us? Do you see this? This gospel has been and will be preached to the end of time. And it doesn't stop there. God's evangelistic all-nations mission is intensifying and increasing now. And the Great Commission is being fulfilled before our eyes. In the year 1900, there was an estimated 558 million Christians on planet Earth. And in 2002, this estimate was 2 billion. There was more done in the 1990s to fulfill the Great Commission than in the previous 200 years of modern missions. Here's what I mean. In 1995, the World Conference of Evangelism in Seoul, South Korea, determined that there were 2,100 unengaged people groups with a population of at least a million people. 2,100 in 1995. Same group gets back together five years later in Amsterdam And the number goes from 2,100 to 457 unengaged people groups with a population of at least a million people. In in 2010, the number had dropped from 457 to 31 unengaged people groups 
with a population of one million or more. God is fulfilling His mission. This has been going on since Genesis chapter 12. He's making good on His Word. The Gospel is going to the ends of the earth. This is just a small overview of what God has promised. Okay? There's, I haven't even scratched the surface of church history of how this message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified has exploded to the farthest portions of the earth. All right, History, when you look at it this way, history is His story. Have you ever heard that? History is His story. The story of God's redemption. Time, ex- time itself exists for God's great gospel. Okay? Every other story is a footnote to this story. Every single story in world history that you've ever heard is just a footnote to this story. The gospel will reach the nations. Listen to this. If modern trends continue, it is estimated that by the year 2025, there will be 633 million Christians in Africa. 640 million Christians in South America and 460 million Christians in Asia. And I want to remind you that we are getting closer and closer and closer to what Jesus said. This gospel must be proclaimed in all the earth and then the end will come. We're getting closer and closer and closer to this. God is fulfilling his great commission. Now I want to spin this and just talk to you for a second. Okay, we just walked through that. I want you to think about this. Think about everything I just told you and then ask yourself this question. How did this gospel spread over all the earth? And ask yourself this question. How did God do this amazing work? I want you to just pause for a second. How did this happen? How did this work happen? That it explodes. Okay. And my encouragement to you this morning is that you would see this. That over and over and over and over and over again that God used people just like you. Just like you. People just like you. Over and over and over and over again. Okay? People just like you. And He filled them with His Holy Spirit. And He put His Word in their mouth. And they, and they walked across the street into the ends of the earth. And they proclaimed Christ. God's plan has always been His people. People just like you. This is my encouragement to you today. Think about how this happened. How did this practically happen? It happened through people just like you. It happened through God's church. People are God's plan. And, and what did they do? They did evangelism. Okay? People, God's people did evangelism. People are God's plan and evangelism is God's strategy. Evangelism is not a new strategy. Evangelism is a tested strategy, approved strategy by God. This has been happening for 5,000 years at least. Genesis chapter 12, the gospel has been preached. It has reached the ends of the, almost to the ends of the earth. People are God's plan, and evangelism is God's strategy. And I'm just reminding you, a fresh reminder from church history this morning, that God has always and will always use people just like you. He's always done this. There's no plan B. Okay? He will raise up His people, fill them with His Spirit, put the gospel in their mouth, and send them out to the ends of the earth. You are God's plan. Okay? Now, I hope that is a motivation to you because this fires me up. This makes me want to run through a brick wall for the Lord. He uses people just like me. This fires me up to think about this. If you desire to be used by God, okay, and we're about to walk into personal evangelism, if you desire to be used by God, 
You need to become very familiar with God's strategy of evangelism. This is His only strategy to, to reach the lost world. It's important that we understand what it is. Do you all agree with that? That if this is God's only strategy for bringing men and women from death to life, then we need to understand real well what evangelism is. you all agree with that? Okay? And I just yes and amen that nod. That we need to understand everything we can about evangelism. We need to grow in our understanding of evangelism. Okay? We would say, so, so just start out like this, and, and I've done this to you before. If we were to start right now, and I were to just say, for you, in your own head, or just in a few uh, words on your piece of paper, and if I were to say, what is evangelism? And you were to define it right now. And I mean Twitter style. You know, real quick, what would you, what, what would you say it is? Okay? And I'm actually asking you right now, so I'm going to stop for just a second. You fix it in your mind. Okay, what do I say evangelism is? Very quickly, very quickly. And I want you to compare after we walk through this teaching today of what you think it is right now and then what you think it is on the backside of what we walk through together. Okay? And the Lord Jesus may have a corrective work in your mind. Or you might have a very healthy understanding of what evangelism is already and you're just going to grow during this time. So think about this. What is evangelism? And we would say that evangelism very simply is proclaiming the evangel, the gospel. That's what evangelism is. Proclaiming the gospel. Gospel is the noun describing the content and evangelism is, ver- is the verb describing the delivery. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel. And this message of the gospel must be delivered to the lost world. This is evangelism. Evangelism, this is some of this is review from last week. It is a very specific message, right? Because it's proclaiming the gospel. It's not just proclaiming anything. And we walked into last week, what is the gospel? The gospel is a very specific message about what God has done in Christ to save sinners. Evangelism is not simply telling your testimony. Okay? Anybody ever bit, bit that bait? Okay? Um, evangelism is not simply telling your testimony. Evangelism is not being a really nice person in the hopes that someone will get saved by, by viewing your lifestyle. This is not evangelism. Both of those are really good things. It's a good thing to talk to people about how Christ saved you. And it's a really good thing to undergird the gospel with a godly lifestyle. These are good things, but they're not evangelism. Evangelism is making known the gospel, the evangel, to a lost world. So most of that is review. But it's worth repeating. We are commanded. Okay, This is where we walk into the commandments of Jesus. We are commanded. Every single person in this room. Nobody's exempt from this. We are commanded to make this message known to the world. Listen to Mark 16, verse 15. Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. So we're not done with this task. The the whole creation hears this message. What message? The gospel. What are we to do? Preach it. This is a command from Christ. Now I want you to listen to the variety of ways that this message is made known. In Mark 16, 15 that we just read, this message, this gospel was preached. Okay? In Mark 13, 10, it is proclaimed. In Acts 20, 24, we are to testify to this gospel. I'm giving you a variety of ways that this message is delivered. 
In Colossians 1.7, we are to teach this gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2.2, we are to declare this gospel. And in Acts chapter 17 alone, listen to this. Uh, evangelism is described as reasoning, explaining, proving, proclaiming, persuading, saying, and preaching. It's just in one chapter. There are a variety of ways that this message is made known. And I want you to note that preach the gospel, that phrase preach the gospel, this is the, this is the dominant phrase in the New Testament regarding evangelism. But I also want you to know that over half the times that phrase is used, the word preach is not in the Greek text. Okay? It's translating the verb, I'll try to say it, this is probably not right, it's translating the verb euangelizo, euangelizo. The euangelion is the gospel, the euangelizo is the verb. Noun form, verb form. Okay? And I'm, I'm not trying to sound smart, here's what I'm trying to call you into. Okay? Is that 61 times that verb is used in the New Testament. And literally what that means is 61 times somebody did some gospeling or somebody got gospeled 61 times in the New Testament. The verb. Okay? That's behind that phrase, preach. All right? Here's, here's what I'm going after. My point in showing you all this. Here's my point in showing you all this. There are a variety of ways that this message is delivered. And I want to slam some bad mindsets in your mind. Okay? This is what I'm going after. Some of you, when you hear the phrase, preach the gospel, and you, and you hear this, that Jesus has commanded us to preach the gospel, your mind automatically goes to a guy standing on a box in a public, a really public place with a lot of people passing by, him, maybe with a megaphone or maybe just talking real loud, and that's what preaching the gospel means to you. Okay? Or maybe you associate that word, preach the gospel, with somebody pointing their finger in somebody's face and just really getting after them with the Bible, right? And what I'm trying to show you is that the Word of God does not limit you down to, the, to, to that narrow of a focus in the way that this message is delivered. Y'all see that? It's delivered in a variety of ways. I'm trying to destroy these bad mindsets. What I'm trying to show you here is that you should not limit this command down to a narrow focus. Let Acts 8.35 serve as a great encouragement to you. Listen to this. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Alright? Ask yourself this question. Sometimes we just let Satan run wild with our minds, especially when it comes to evangelism. I mean, this is about people getting saved. Okay? And you think, well, I'm not sure I can preach. All right? Well, think about Acts 8.35. How many Christians do you know that can open their mouth? Answer that question. How many do you know that, that can open your mouth? Evangelism in 8.35 is described as opening your mouth and telling people about Jesus. Okay? I don't want any bad mindsets to be lodged in your mind. We must make this message known through communication. We open our mouths and we talk to lost people about Christ. Okay? This is evangelism. Making the evangel known to the lost world. We don't just tell people anything, right? We already talked about that a little bit. We don't just tell people anything. We tell them the evangel, the gospel. And it's worth repeating, there is no such thing as evangelism apart from a biblical gospel. The gospel can be summarized. Some of you have heard this before. Some of you may not. I love this. This is so helpful for me. The gospel can be defined in the following categories. God, sin, Christ, 
respond. Okay? And what I don't mean is that you go up to somebody and you want to share the gospel with them and you say, God, sin, Christ, respond. That, that's not what I'm going after. Okay? I want you to think about those as categories. All right? Almost like mental folders in your mind. And this can be extremely helpful for you. I do this for myself. And if you don't like this method, there are other methods. I'm not saying this is the only one. But when you walk into a conversation with a lost person, it is so helpful for you to have a grid of where you're taking that conversation. And this is a good one. God, sin, Christ, respond. And what I would charge you to do is that you would begin to memorize verses, that you would share people with people the Word of God, and you would memorize these verses and you would slide them in these mental folders in your mind. Okay, When I'm talking about God, here's what I want to convey. Here's the verses that I want to share. When I'm talking about sin, here's what I want to convey. Here's the verses that I want to share. When I'm talking about Christ, here's what I want to convey. And here's the verses that I want to share. When I'm talking about responding... Here's what I want to say, and here's the verses I want to share. And the reason that is so helpful, because it almost never goes as planned. Almost never goes as planned. You know that, right? You can have the best plan in your mind, and all of a sudden, you're five minutes in, and somebody's talking about tongues. And you got to deal with tongues. And then five minutes later, somebody's talking about, uh, well, I don't believe that. You know, or, or, the, or the New Testament, it's full of errors. So you got to sh- slaughter that. And so you ha- if you have this... This grid in your mind, it helps you to stay oriented. That way when you go and you deal with these little issues, you come straight back to the core of the gospel and you're walking them straight through. I'm telling you, I think this can be helpful for you. These gospel categories, they help you stay oriented. So God, sin, Christ, respond. Let these categories unpack what evangelism means. So we'll start with the first one. We must tell the truth about God to lost people. We must tell the truth about the God of the Bible's nature, His character, His attributes, His roles. Okay, here's what I mean. We must proclaim God is the creator of all things. He is the creator of all things. And we must proclaim Him, the God who created all things, as good. A good creator. He's the good creator that created all things. And because He is creator... Because God has created all things, He has the right to rule His creation. And so now, we must proclaim to lost people that God is not only Creator, but He's King. Okay? Listen to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. It says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. From this God are all things, for this God Everything that you can imagine exists. We exist from Him, Creator, and we exist for Him. He's the King. Okay? We must tell the truth. We must tell the truth about God's authority as King. We, since He is a ruler of the universe, we must tell the truth about His law. He has given moral demands upon His creation, and we must be honest. We must tell the lost world the truth about God's law, about the law of the King. And we must tell the world the truth that the God the Creator and God the King is God the Judge that will judge humanity at the end of time. We must be honest about these things and we must t- proclaim God to this lost world. Listen to Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. You must be honest with people. And proclaim to the lost world that God is righteous. Okay? 
they wake up and go about their life every day and they think that this God will just look past their sin. But the Word of God says that God is a righteous judge and He feels indignation every day. We have to tell the truth about God. Psalm 711, and I'll leave you with 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for the things that he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And we must be honest with lost people that they will stand before Christ Himself. They will give an account of their life and He is a just judge. Okay, We must proclaim God to this world. Second category, we must tell the truth about sin to lost people. Puritan, Puritans, Ryan just ninja you with about seven Puritan quotes during the Lord's Supper. This is the only one I got. All right. Puritans used to call this law work. Okay. Being honest with people about sin, they called it law work. I love that definition. And we must do this. We must do law work. We must proclaim the law of God and show lost people the standard that God requires. The purpose of the law is to reveal sin and lead to Christ. And we must use this law. Listen to Romans 3.20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians 3.24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that they might be justified by faith. We have to, this is a gift from God to us, to confront sinners with their own sinfulness. We have something that reveals sin and leads to Christ, and we need to use it. And I would commend to you, probably the best resource in this law work department is this uh, resource. This is an evangelism strategy called Way of the Master. And you can visit that site and you can just look into it. But, but there's a really good strategy. I think it's the best one in this category. Okay? There will be no harder truth. You can test this. Okay? There, my, this is my opinion. There will be no harder truth to get across to this generation than the truth about sin. Okay? This is, this, is, this is our battleground. This is where we need to wage war. And yet unless, this is so hard for people to understand, yet unless it's understood, the gospel cannot be grasped. We must tell the truth to the lost world that every human being has broken God's law and fallen short of God's glory. They've broken His law and fallen short of His glory. And we must expose the shame and the ugliness of sin. And what I mean by that is we don't, we're not just after somebody just saying, yeah, sure, I'm a sinner. No, we're after somebody feeling the shame of it. This has defamed God's name and the ugliness of sin. Okay? And we, must, we must expose these things. Because of our rebellion, God the King and God the Judge has already condemned us. That's, uh, John chapter 3, verse 17. He's already condemned us. And the biggest problem facing every single human being on this planet is that they have presently, every breath they draw, Present in the present life, okay, they have been rejected by God. They have been separated from God. And they're already condemned that in the future they will face the sure, just, holy wrath of God. That is the biggest problem facing every single lost person that you know. Even the ones that had the most ridiculous, uh, even beyond what we can describe earthly circumstances, they have a problem bigger than that. The wrath of God. And we must be honest about this. One of the best ways to show sinners their sin is to walk them through the Ten Commandments. And you'll see that in the way of the Master. They have a really good way of doing that. 
And what I mean by walking them through the Ten Commandments is we must show people specific commandments in God's Word that they have broken over and over and over again. This needs to happen. We need to confront people with the law of God. And the Ten Commandments is a good way to do it. As we tell the truth about sin, our aim is that sinners would experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going after. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. Our aim would be that they would become concerned for their souls. Amen? That they would become concerned for their souls. In short, we must proclaim that man is sinful, rebellious, and separated. And we must warn that God has promised wrath as a payment to all sinners. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ezekiel 18.4 Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. Romans 2 verse 9 There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Every single human being there will be tribulation. We need to announce this to the world. Shame on us for hiding this message. For not warning people of the, of the wrath to come, the judgment to come. Category three, Christ. We must tell the truth about Christ to the lost. Alright, I want to say this. Technically, the first two categories are not the gospel. Technically. Okay? The gospel means good news. And the first two categories were God and sin. Okay? That's actually the bad news. So technically, this category is the gospel proclaimed, okay? But you can't really grab a hold of the good news until you see the bad news. But when we come to Christ, we are proclaiming the gospel. The word means good news. The good news is Jesus and Him crucified and risen. There is no evangelism where that message is not proclaimed. If you go to somebody... And you start swinging into a spiritual conversation. And you share with them that God is holy. And that man is sinful. And that God has promised wrath. And then you stop. You have not preached the gospel. That is not evangelism. Okay? Evangelism is preaching good news. That in the midst of this judgment, Christ came. Okay? This is evangelism. We must tell the lost world that Jesus came on a rescue mission of salvation. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 He came into the world to save sinners. The gospel is about Jesus. Therefore, evangelism is making Jesus known. And we don't just make anything known about Jesus. Not just anything. Okay? We don't go to tell people and tell them, Hey, in John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. We don't tell people anything just anything about Jesus. It's a specific message about Christ. Specific message. What is it? We proclaim the death and resurrection of our Lord. We proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the centerpiece of the gospel. This is where we should... There should be nothing in our minds that rivals this concept. This is the matter of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ died for our sins and three days later He rose from the dead. This is the most exalted, important thought that could ever roll across any human's mind. And it's the most exalted and important thought that could ever roll across your mind. The death and resurrection of Jesus. This is what we proclaim. We proclaim that Christ, the slaughtered Lamb, three days later, rose as the exalted Lord. This is our message to the world. 
The death and resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus over and over and over again. You need to find every single way that you possibly can to proclaim this content, this message. Any way possible to proclaim the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the good news. And it does not get any better than this. The death and resurrection of our Lord. Alright, to understand Jesus' death, let's pick them apart. Death and resurrection. To understand His death, you must understand His incarnation. That God, the eternal Son, came as Jesus the man. And Jesus was conceived by the, uh, in, by the Virgin Holy Spirit. I'm sorry. <laughs> to understand Jesus' death, you have to understand His incarnation. Okay? And let's walk into why that statement is true. God, the eternal Son, came as Jesus, the man. I'm going to say this fast, but not so fast I get twisted up. God, the eternal Son, came as Jesus, the man. Jesus was conceived of a virgin by the Holy Spirit and was born as the God-man. Okay? Because He was conceived of the Holy Spirit through a virgin, He was both God and man. He was the God-man. Jesus was fully God and He was fully man. Fully human and fully God. As man, He had a sinless human nature. And Jesus lived a perfect sinless life before God. His obedience, His perfect obedience, qualified Jesus to die for the sins of the world. He qualified Himself to die as the spotless Lamb of God. In His death, Jesus made substitutionary atonement. You never have to say that to a lost person. But you need to understand that for yourself. Jesus made substitutionary atonement. You need to know what that means. For every person who will ever trust Him, here's what that means. Sin was placed on Christ. And He died in our place and took the wrath of God. He lived the life we should have lived and He died the death that we should have died. He became our substitution. And in His life and in His death, He made atonement and payment for our sins. God punished Him as our substitute. And God accepted His perfect life and His death as a payment for all the sins of all who trust Him. And you need to learn how to talk often about the death of Jesus. Think of ways that you can enter into conversations with people where the content of what you discuss is not some tertiary uh, matter in the Word of God, but at the blazing center of the Gospel, Christ's death on the cross for sinners. To understand Jesus' resurrection, you, know, you need to understand His ascension. Jesus' resurrection proved that God, that God accepted Jesus' payment for our sins. How do you know that? Because three days later, He rose from the dead. He came back to life. Okay? And in His resurrection, God says, I have accepted this sacrifice. I have accepted this payment. Jesus, after He comes back to life, walks around on the earth for 40 days. The man, the God-man, Jesus, He walks around on the earth for 40 days. And then He ascends to heaven. Jesus, the God-man, ascends to heaven. And God the Father enthrones Jesus, the God-man, and makes Him king of everything that you can ever imagine, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to this God-man, Jesus. Okay? So do you already see that if you're soft on the resurrection when you're in evangelism, that you're going to miss this authoritative presentation of Jesus is not only the, the wounded one who died for our sins, He rose as the exalted Lord and King of everything that you can ever imagine. Okay? He's the living one. 
Uh, J.I. Packer says this, that we should proclaim Jesus in all of His beauty to the lost world. And he, what he says is from the cradle to the cross to the crown. And I love that, that we need to proclaim Jesus in the beauty of all He's done to lost humanity. Here's uh, 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Romans 5, verse 8. These are some verses to stick in these categories. Romans 5, 8. But God shows His love for us and that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I hope you know some of these. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 14, verse 9. To this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Jesus has done everything necessary to save us. Everything necessary, Jesus has finished it. He's accomplished it. And in John 19, verse 30, with His dying breath on the cross, Jesus utters three words. It is finished. Okay? Jesus has done everything to save lost humanity. Okay. We must also tell the truth about the promises that Jesus made to the lost world. Maybe you haven't thought about this, but listen to this. Jesus made promises to lost humanity. His promises basically fit into two categories. Jesus has promised to forgive us of all of our sins. That's a, the legal category. And Jesus has also promised to restore us to a personal relationship with God. That's a relational category. Okay, Here we go. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This is a promise from Christ to the lost world. Then listen to John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we got two categories there, legal and relational. Now, I just, I just started seeing this two months ago, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. But this has been very encouraging to me. Okay? This is in the Bible. Okay? Here, here's, here's what I mean by that. The first two times the gospel is preached in the book of Acts, which is a pretty good place to go, right? If we want to unpack what evangelism is and take the, the God-ordained strategies for evangelism, like Acts, when the gospel is preached, is a pretty good place to go, right? And I started noticing in the first two times the gospel is preached in Acts, you see these two categories. Here's what I mean. Listen to Acts 2, verse 38. This is the first time the gospel is preached in the book of Acts. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He made two promises to, the, to a group of lost people in that verse. Two promises. Think about this. Do you see what he offers them? He offers them two things. Forgiveness of sin and the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what he offered lost people. In his gospel presentation, Forgiveness of sin and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Alright, the first promise, I started digging in, I was so encouraged by this. The first promise that Peter offers them, forgiveness of sin, meets lost mankind's most urgent need. 
Forgiven of sin, no more wrath from God. Forgiven of sin. This is the most urgent need of every lost person on the face of the earth. And then the second promise that Jesus offers them is the highest blessing that any human being could ever receive. God Himself. We get forgiven of sin and we get God. And the, and the way He plays this out in that verse is the sins, uh, your sin, forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. The same exact thing happens in the next time the Gospel is preached in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3. So let's look at that. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. These same two categories and promises are presented to lost, lost people. Acts 3, 19 and 20. We read, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you. Same two categories. Okay? Our sins can be blotted out. This meets our most urgent need for lost humanity. Sins blotted out. Sins forgiven. And in a legal sense, we can be right before God. And then that second one is this. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We can have the presence of God Himself. We can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. The presence of God Himself. The forgiveness of sin deals with our condemnation before God. And this, the presence of God deals with our separation from God. Okay, And these are a double problem for lost humanity. They're cut off from God and they're condemned. But the promises of the gospel meet both of, both of those. That they can be made right with God and brought near to God. And this is part of the offer of the gospel in the first, two, uh, first three chapters of Acts. Are you doing this? When you preach the gospel, are you doing this? Are you offering people the promises of Christ? Are you doing this? It is very popular to offer people a personal relationship with God apart from adequately dealing with their sins. So there's two categories in Jesus' promise, but a real popular thing now is to talk about how you're separated from God, but you can know God in Jesus, so you need to believe in Jesus. And you never come to the concept and the idea and the doctrine of sin, and you don't deal with it. This is very popular. Okay? And the way that this goes down is they're, they're, they're there for a reason together. There is no personal relationship with God apart from forgiveness of sin. There is none. It's, it's a figment of our imagination. Okay? But I also want to give you another warning. Here's the other warning. God is more than a judge, and He desires for lost people to know Him as Father. Okay? This is the entire point of the parable of the prodigal son. That's the entire point of that parable, is that it pictures God as running after to receive lost people. He's more than a judge. He wants lost people to know Him as Father. Alright? Let's proclaim both of these promises to the lost. Legal and relational. And I want to give a strong reminder uh, in this last point under Christ that evangelism is not merely preaching facts about Christ. Even facts about His death and His resurrection. In evangelism, we are to proclaim Christ Himself as a living person, the slaughtered yet risen one. Okay? We proclaim Jesus, not just facts about Jesus. If you don't understand, just listen for a minute. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 5. 
What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Or how about Colossians 1.28? Uses this language. Him we proclaim. Jesus we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. We proclaim Christ. Not just ideas about Christ. And here's what I mean. Doctrines apart from Jesus do not save you. Okay? You need a living person. And when we preach the gospel, we're not just preaching ideas. We're preaching about a living person. He's sitting on the throne right now. He's, he's raised from the dead. He's risen. And He's already died for the sins of all who trust Him. He's alive. And we present Him as the living, personal Christ. Alright, I'll give you an example of what I mean. And I know this is subtle. And this may not interest you. But I want you to listen for just a second. Um, you might not think this is a big deal. But I've heard this before. Okay? I want you to think about What do you think about this? Very often I have heard, and maybe you've heard, someone say this. You need to believe that Jesus died for your sins. That's what you need to believe. And upon believing that Jesus died for your sins, you receive forgiveness of your sins. Or maybe you've heard it said like this. You need to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Does that make sense? Alright, so take those phrases. You need to believe that Jesus died for your sins. And I, I want to examine that with you for a second. The problem with these statements is that the object of faith in those statements, where faith terminates and lands, is on a doctrine, not a person. You understand that? When we say, you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins, the object of your faith is a fact, not a person. Okay? You understand that? And it also anchors the object of your faith in the past instead of a present living person. Okay? So you believe past facts instead of present living person. So keep thinking about this. We're going we're gonna to talk about it a little bit more. I know this is subtle, but I want you to listen to me. This is not the emphasis of the Bible. Search this out for yourself. And here's what I mean by that. In the New Testament, almost always it's phrased, believe in, into, or on Jesus. Not something that happened to Jesus, but Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus. This is almost always the emphasis of the Word of God. And that might sound like a subtle difference to you, but I'm telling you there's a difference there that you need to think about. Listen to Acts 16, 31. It says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We put our trust in the living Savior who died for our sins and rose again as triumphant King. Okay? I don't mean that we shouldn't believe facts about Christ or tell people facts about Christ. I don't mean that. I'm just pushing on you a little bit. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.2. It does not say, 1 Corinthians 2.2 does not say that Jesus Christ was crucified. It says this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Not proclaiming facts about Him only. We're proclaiming Him. We're proclaiming the person of Jesus. I know that sounds like a subtle difference to you, but I'm telling you, the gospel carries authority and power when Jesus is presented as a living person and not just an idea. When He's presented as a living, reigning King who rose from the dead. Okay? I want you to be on the lookout for that subtle difference. And you need to think long and hard about that because there's a way to tweak these things where we make the offer that's a little bit off, like what I told you. 
Uh, Category number four, we need to tell the truth about response. The work of Jesus and what he's done in the good news is not automatically applied to every single person. If you believe that it's automatically applied to every single person, then you have believed in the heresy of universalism. That Jesus died and he was raised and we all go to heaven. Okay, But it doesn't automatically apply to every single person. This is so clear in the word of God. Many will, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, there will be many who perish forever. Okay? So how do we get in on this good news? The Word of God says we must respond. We have to respond to the gospel. Jesus Himself told us what the proper response to the gospel is. Listen to Mark 1, verse 15. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1, verse 15. Okay? Jesus preached repentance and faith in the gospel. And my submission to you is that Jesus is really smart, even sinless. Okay? And we need to listen up when Jesus says repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance and faith are required to be saved. Write that down. When we see this biblically, we understand these are not two separate acts, but one act. And the way this is almost always explained, they're like two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. We need to be like Paul in Acts 20, 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are universal commands that God has given mankind. And they make them universal duties binding on every lost person. And the reason I draw that out is because we almost always think that God is inviting people to believe in Jesus. Inviting people into a relationship with Himself. Inviting people to repent of their sins and trust Him. Okay? And I'm not saying He doesn't. I'm just saying there's a whole other layer to that. That God, the King, actually has issued commands that all humanity repent and believe in Christ. Listen to this. Acts 17, verse 30. This is the command of God for all mankind to repent. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, who's supposed to repent in that verse? All people everywhere. All people everywhere are commanded to repent by God. That pretty much covers it, right? All people everywhere are commanded to repent by God. Impenitence is a serious sin. A lack of repentance is a serious sin before God. God has commanded this. God has also commanded that we believe. In 1 John 3.23, says this, and this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son. God has commanded lost humanity to believe in Christ. Unbelief is a serious sin to God. This is a breach of His commandments. So we should invite people to come to Christ. And that means we should invite people into repentance and faith. And we should deliver God's authoritative demand that the lost repent and believe in Jesus. Do you do this? Do you do this? When you're talking to people about Christ, do you have any kind of grid for this at all? Okay? You invite them to come. Is there any kind of push where you show them that God the King has actually spoken, He's demanded that you turn and trust in Christ? Do you do this? Okay? Let's talk about what repentance and faith are. Let's, let's define them. We'll start with the repentance. Repentance is not a work. Drive that down in your head. Repentance is not a work. Repentance, when you say repent, 
That is not equal to you saying, obey God. Okay? It is not a work. Repentance is not a work. If you make it a work, you preach a false gospel because repentance is required to be saved. So you need to think hard about this one. Okay? Repentance is not a work, and if you preach it wrongly, you preach a false gospel. But Luke 24, we're commanded that we have to preach it. So you need, we need to figure out a way to preach repentance to where it's not a work. Okay? Repentance is not a work. It's an act of the inner man. Repentance produces good works, obedience, and fruit. But it is not good works, obedience, or fruit. Okay? It's an act of the inner man. Repentance describes a change of direction in the inner man. It is a change of heart, a change of mind, an inward turning away and a turning toward. Inward, inner man. Faith. What is faith? Faith is an act of the inner man. To have faith is to believe in, to trust in, to rely on, to be convinced of, to be assured by. And God has commanded that all humanity repent and believe in Jesus. We are to tell the truth and issue the call for lost people to turn and to trust, to repent and believe, to renounce and rely on Jesus. Okay, This is a two-edged sword. We don't just get to chop this in half and present one of these. We preach repentance and faith in Christ, just like Paul in Acts 20. Now, I want to give you three categories to think about in regards of repentance and faith. And I want to give you a lot of examples of what this looks like, maybe in a real-life conversation. Okay? These are not authoritative. This might help you think through this for yourself. We must repent and believe in Jesus as Savior, number one. As Lord, number two. And as treasure, number three. Okay, We're going to walk through that together. We must proclaim this message to the world that people must repent and believe in Jesus as Savior. Every lost person that you will ever encounter has a functional Savior. Okay? Think about this. What, is it? what does he mean? I mean that every person that you encounter thinks that they'll be safe for one reason or another. They have a functional Savior. Okay? Here's some examples of what this looks like. What would this look like? For example, many people think that they will be safe because they are a self-proclaimed good person. Okay? Y'all ever heard that? That is rampant. I'm fine and I'm safe Because I'm a good person. That person's savior is something called self-righteousness. Okay? They are safe in their own mind in their self-righteousness. They have a functional savior. We must tell the truth that these people need to renounce their trust in their own good works. And to put all of their trust in Jesus as savior. Okay? Good works will never save. No human being will be accepted by God on the basis of good works. Romans 3.20. No human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law. It'll never happen. We need to make this announcement. Here's another example. Many people, this is pretty prevalent too. Maybe you've run into uh, many of these conversations. Many people think that they will be safe because God in their mind is so loving and so kind that he would never punish people in hell. Okay? And so they count themselves safe Because the God that they believe in doesn't punish sinners. Do you understand that? Their functional Savior is the God that they've created in their own mind. Okay? Anybody ever ran across this? We must tell the truth that these people need to renounce their trust in this false God 
and trust in Jesus as Savior. Okay? Their functional Savior will fall right out from under their feet in eternity and they will face the wrath of God. And we must issue the call that they stop trusting in this false God that they've created in their own mind and trust in Jesus. Here's another example. Many people believe that they will be safe because they don't believe in God at all. Okay? And so they count themselves safe because they think God's judgments are imaginary. Okay? Do you understand that? Their functional Savior is their idea that there is no God, therefore there is no judgment, there is no danger. That's their functional Savior. Anybody ever encounter this? We must tell the truth that these people need to renounce trusting in this false religion of atheism and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who alone saves sinners. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Second category, we must invite and even command lost people to trust, to repent and believe in Jesus as Lord. Okay, here's what I mean. Every lost person that you will ever encounter has a functional authority in their life. Okay, the other one was a functional savior. This is a functional authority. What do you mean by that? They have a master that they serve. For example... Okay, here's an, here's an example for you. Many people are under the false, the authority, the authority structure of the false god of Islam. Okay, that's their whole authority structure. This is their functional authority. They have crowned this false god as their king. And we must tell the truth that these people need to renounce this false god and come under the authority of King Jesus. Acts 14, 15. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. It's good news to look at somebody who is bowing down to vain things and say, turn to the living God. That's good news. That's gospel preaching. Okay. Here's another example. Functional authority. Many lost people, this is really common in our area, say that they have no authority at all. Okay? And what does that mean? That means that their functional authority is themselves. Isaiah 53, verse 6, nails this one on the head. Describing lost mankind, Isaiah 53 describes this person in this way. We have turned everyone to his own way. This person turns to his own way. He crowns himself as king. He is his own functional authority. He makes himself out to be his own God. Have you ever encountered anybody like this? This is called humanism. Okay? It is prevalent in our culture. Crowning man as king. We are our own authority. This is the false teaching. And these people that have crowned themselves as king, they think they're free, but Romans chapter 6 pictures this person in slavery to sin. Slavery to sin. Sin in Romans 6 is a master that lost humanity bows down to. Sin. They think they're free, but they're a slave to sin. Sin and self have become their master and Lord and King. And we must tell the truth that these people need to renounce 
sin and self as their authority and come under the authority of King Jesus. Okay? Now, this is not a call. When we, when we call sinners to repent, this is not a call to sinless perfection. Okay? This is a call to change your authority. You do your own thing and we're calling you to repent, to change your heart and mind and to come under the authority of Jesus. One of the best examples I've heard of how this is described is we, we issue the call to decide whose team you're on. Okay? You decide whose team you're on. War is waged, the line is drawn between Jesus and sin. You need to decide whose team you're on. Okay? And we make that decision before we ever make one act of obedience. We decide who our master is, who our authority is, who our king is. We have to announce this to the world. Even though repentance doesn't mean an immediate end to our sinning, it does mean that we will no longer be at peace with our sin. We, are at, we will and, and will remain at war with sin because we are on Jesus' side. This is important. This is really, really important that you issue the call for lost people to repent and believe in Jesus as Lord. Why is this important? There is no salvation without it. There is no salvation without a saving faith in Jesus as Lord. Listen to the Word of God. Acts 16.31 Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And then listen to Christ Himself in Luke 14. This is a little longer, but this just really gets to the heart of this. Luke 14, 25 through 33. Jesus says this. Now, this is really important that you listen to the first four or five words of what I'm about to read. Okay? Jesus said this. Sinless Jesus doesn't make doctrinal errors. Okay? All right. First four or five words of Luke 14, 25 says, Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus. Great crowds. So picture in your mind, however, however that goes down, by lake, in the desert, Jesus is standing there and great crowds are around him. Okay? And then the very next word says, And he turned and said to them, Jesus turns and announces this to great crowds of people. Okay? Not just this inner circle of Peter, James, and John. Okay? This is not, this is not the extra on to discipleship. This is the announcement of the Savior to massive crowds of humanity. And then he says this. Luke 14. He said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And if you jump down to the end of that passage in verse 33, the Son of God says this, So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is not discipleship 301. This is the doorway to salvation. Okay? Unless you renounce all that you have, Jesus says you can't be his disciple. This is what he's proclaiming. He's proclaiming to a group of lost people, you have to come under my authority. I am King Jesus. This is the message. And I want to ask you this, how irresponsible is it 
to issue the call of salvation without even the slightest mention to the Lordship of Christ. This is playing games with the souls of men. Okay? Number three, receive, repent and believe in Jesus as Savior. Repent and believe in Jesus as Lord. And in this third category, I lean heavily on John Piper for this, for opening my eyes to this. Repent and believe in Jesus as treasure. What in the world do you mean? All right. We must invite and even command lost people to repent and believe in Jesus as treasure. Every lost person that you will encounter, every single one with the gospel that you encounter with the gospel, is satisfied in sin. Okay? Their treasure, their pleasure, their satisfaction is in sin. And we must warn the lost that sin, the sin in which they delight in is actually eternally destructive. We must make this announcement. We must tell the truth. Sin is a false pleasure that makes false promises of satisfaction, but it works death. Okay? There's deception there. We must make this announcement. And here's how we do it. We proclaim that Jesus is better than sin. We make this proclamation. Jesus has pleasures forevermore and He alone can satisfy the human soul. For example, many of you will encounter someone like this in a gospel conversation. They think that true pleasure and satisfaction in life can be found in drunkenness, fornication, and greed. Okay? Those are just an example of sin. Okay? You can insert several different other things there. But this is what they believe. That they think that their greatest joy and the thing that they're on this planet for is to gain the satisfaction in this pleasure and this sin. How do we do this? How do we issue the call? How do we bring the gospel to bear on this person? We must expose sin for what it is. They think it's a pleasure. We must expose it as death. Okay? And then we must lift Christ Jesus up so high that our message to this person is that Jesus is better than drunkenness, fornication, and greed. Jesus is better. You are made for Christ. In His presence is, is, is pleasures forevermore. Okay? He is the satisfaction to every human soul. He is the bread of life. So here's the call to that person. Jesus is better and we must make known God's demand to the lost. That they turn their mind and their heart away from the false pleasures of sin and turn inwardly towards pleasures forevermore in Jesus. Say, so where is this at in the Bible? Matthew 13, 44 says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's a parable of conversion. Jesus Christ is the treasure in the field. And we joyfully lose everything that we have just to buy the field to dig up that treasure. Jesus is the treasure in the field. It's our joy to lose everything and gain Him. And this is a reminder for us, right? That heaven is not filled with people who just wanted forgiveness. Okay? Heaven is full of people who want to be with Jesus. Okay? This is a powerful reminder for us. People who want to be with Jesus. John 6, verse 35, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And we must issue this call to turn and to trust and even to treasure Christ. This is our announcement. This is the call for response. Now I want to finish 
with this last plea to you. We must never forget that our aim in evangelism and gospel conversations, every single time we talk about Christ to lost people, our aim is conversion. Okay? Our aim is not just to say some things. We aim to present this to someone in such a way that God would bring them from death to life. This is our aim in evangelism. To summon people to a response to be saved. We inform about Jesus and invite sinners to come to Christ. Don't aim for anything less than this in your evangelism. There's an old saying that goes like this. If you aim at nothing, you will hit it every single time. Do not aim for anything less than, evan- than conversion in your evangelism. The results of our preaching of the gospel depend on God. Okay? But we need to aim that God would use us to bring lost people from death to life. If you are not seeking to bring about conversions, you are not preaching the gospel. You are not. You are dropping information. You are not calling men and women to repent and to trust in Christ and to come to Him and be saved. If we are not seeing conversions, we need to seek the Lord as to why. This needs to be a matter of earnest prayer for us. We need to yearn and to burn that God would use us to, to, to drop this message and to see someone raised from the spiritual death right in front of our face. Our aim is conversion. Are you faithfully making known this gospel message? Ask yourself that. Are you calling sinners to repent and believe in Jesus? We are to persuade. And the Word of God even plead. Or King James, we are to beseech people. Whatever that means. Just pleading. Be reconciled to God. Okay? Our presentation and our plea for people to respond to Jesus should never be passionless. We plead. We plead with them to come to Christ. We plead with them to be reconciled to God. And our conversation should be saturated with passion and brokenness and a concern for their soul. Now, all... All calls to respond are not manipulation. Okay? Now I know that you've seen that before, right? Somebody will work it up, especially at like a, you know, old school, I don't know, uh, some gospel gathering, and they'll start working it up, you know. The, the song will get louder, and the chorus will go for the seventh time, and the preacher will say, anybody come forth? Three minutes later, I know somebody's coming. Three minutes later, I know somebody's coming in here. And y'all have seen that, right? There are pleas that can be manipulative, but not every plea to be saved is manipulative. We need to have a passion for lost people, even tears in our eyes and a concern for the souls of men that we call them to repent and believe in Jesus. Okay? This does sound like something I plead with you, brother. I plead with you to come to Christ. I plead with you. Please don't be this reckless with your soul. Think about eternity. Think about these things. And Jesus is ready to save you. And we plead and we make the call and we make the announcement. And this is not manipulation. This is the heart of God. God is the one in the parable of the prodigal son that runs out to meet. And we need to picture Him like that. He is pleading. We are to win people for the Lord. This is uh, our aim is conversion. We are to win people for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9.19 that I may win some. Jesus promised us that we would be catchers, our fishers of men. Luke 5.10 This is evangelism. Okay? This is what this means. 
That we are used of God, just like the story that we read at the first of this, this big long intro through church history. We are to be used of God to call men and women from death to life. Fishers of men. Catchers of men. Acts 26 verse 18. I'll close with this verse. This is what God has sent us to do in this world. Acts 26 18. God has sent us to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So I want to give you some closing thoughts. And then we're going to have a time of prayer together. Some closing thoughts are this. If we see this message rightly, we can have great confidence in this message because this is God's message. Okay, This is not our gospel. This is God's gospel. This is why Romans 1.16 says this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why is he not ashamed of this gospel? Because of how powerful it is. Because of whose it is. Okay? We can have great confidence in this message. Now I want to remind you of this. That we take this message about Jesus to a lost world that doesn't just say every time that we share, thank you very much, I'd love to, I would love to respond to that. Okay? There is hostility. Lost mankind are enemies of God, rebellious to God. Okay? And I'm reminding you of this because of We need boldness in the Holy Spirit to proclaim this message. We need boldness in the Holy Spirit. We need to faithfully ask God to fill us with His Spirit and to help us proclaim His Word fearlessly. Okay, When we're proclaiming the resurrected Jesus, and in the back of our minds, if we're just thinking about the fear of man, oh, I hope I don't offend, and and, whoa, I don't know how that's going to sit right. Does that even make sense? We announce the living Christ. Okay? And how do we do this? And we do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Acts chapter 4 verse 31. It says this, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. I say yes and amen. Let's ask God to fill us with His Holy Spirit and to use us to proclaim His gospel with boldness, not an ounce of fear before man. I pray that you are encouraged by this thought that God uses people just like you over and over and over again in church history and this will never change. And to the end of time, this gospel will be proclaimed to the nations as a witness, as a testimony. And God will use His church, Christians just like you, to engage lost people in a lost world. I pray that that encourages you. Last point. I want to call us in. We're about to have a moment uh, where we pray together as a church. And anyone's welcome to pray in, this, in, the, in these next few moments. Just make sure that you pray loud enough where everybody can hear you and amen what you're saying. But I want to charge us to, to use these next few moments and pray, pray for this church that we would faithfully make known this message. That we would be faithful. Okay? That God would raise us up as an army. That we would be faithful to deliver this message to lost humanity. To deliver this message across the street and to the ends of the earth. That we would be made faithful. We need His help. We cannot do this in our own strength. We need God's help. And let's call out to Him in a few moments. And here's, here's a verse that's burning on me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18-20 through 20 says this. All this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. May we faithfully issue this call and proclaim this message.